joy. We hear it and we think of happiness or laughter. But true joy far outweighs any fleeting emotions. Like a beautiful garment, joy is a response that we clothe ourselves with. And at this time of year, it's our heart's cry as we bear witness again to the birth of the Savior. And let's face it, there's not a person here who couldn't use a little more joy these days. So you're invited into that quality of joy, whether your life is full of happiness or not. It's an invitation for every person, and it's here now, because Jesus is here now. This is joy. Welcome to Christmas. Joy. As we dismiss our kids this morning to go to their classes, I have one question for you. I need you to answer it for me loudly. How many of you guys are excited that Christmas is only two weeks away? That was pretty weak. I'm just going to be honest. I'm, some of you are excited. Some of you want it to delay out just a little bit longer so you can hear the Christmas music. As a matter of fact, as I was preparing for this message, I was hoping for an answer of extreme happiness, of excitedness, of, well, we'll just call it our day word for the day, joy, joy. There's a single word that describes the Christmas season, what Christmas is all about. I think it is found in those three little letters, J-O-Y, joy. Several of our favorite Christmas carols mention joy, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Shepherds, why this jubilee with your joyous strains prolong? Good Christian men, what are you supposed to do? Rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Joy. If you know me, you probably know that I love movies. Christmas movies are definitely on that list of movies that I love. And there's so many of my favorite Christmas movies that really revolve around stories of joy. Now, sometimes Hollywood confuses happiness and joy, but some of the movies, they get it. They get joy. It's a Wonderful Life, probably one of my favorites. It's all about reflection in finding joy, even in the poor circumstances that he found himself in. The Grinch. The Grinch, I could do a whole sermon on The Grinch. As a matter of fact, this year I had considered, I had considered doing an At the Movies Christmas edition and just doing all Christmas movies and finding the, the message in each one of those movies, and maybe I'll do it next year, but I'll tell you about The Grinch. The Grinch is probably one of my favorites. It doesn't matter which version you watch, whether it be the newest one with Benedict Cumberbatch or you have Jim Carrey or you have the old TV version or the, the cartoon version of it all. It all starts off with him hating Christmas. By the way, if I ruin this for you, um, sorry. Okay. Um, it all starts off with him um, hating Christmas, living alone, living in anger, living in bitterness, in isolation with a heart that is two sizes too small. But by the end... He has a heart change, which is pretty weird that we've been talking about that with the Bible for so long. As a matter of fact, here's what the good Dr. Seuss writes. He said, he hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or another, it came just the same. 
And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Now, it leaves it hanging there just a little bit, but... If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that little bit more. And you know that little bit more personally when a heart change happens and we realize what life is all about, what we live for when darkness is overcome by the light. If you read the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, which we've done over these last couple of weeks with this God with us, it says, a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. We see that in the Grinch. John chapter 1, we read it last week, in him Jesus is, was life, and that life was the light of men. If you go to Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, he has a prophecy after his son, John, who we know as John the Baptist was born. He says this in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zach, those are some powerful words. And Dr. Seuss copied them by showing us the Grinch. As a matter of fact, you can do a whole sermon series, like I said, just on the Grinch, but you can take that same part and you can apply it to a Christmas carol. Also one of my favorites. It doesn't matter which version you watch from the Muppets to uh, the newest one on Apple TV called Spirited. I love the, the idea of reflection on your past and seeing where the darkness has been in your heart and your eyes are opened up to the light. I mean, if you've watched that new spirited one, I don't know if you have or not. It's got a little bit of language. Actually, it's got a lot of bit of language. But, but the, the whole part of it all is taking the unredeemable and redeeming them. What's the gospel about? Taking the unredeemable and making them redeemed. It's unbelievable how Hollywood misses the truth of Christmas, yet shares the truth of Christmas. As I began to look at it, I looked at that heart change. Isn't that what it's all about with Scrooge? He'd been living in sin, living in selfishness, living in pride, trying to find joy or happiness in all of the wrong things by, by holding on to those coins, holding on to the money. And then he realized his life was for so much more, and he repented. He repented. That's what redemption is about. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we are led to repentance. And it reminds me of Psalm 51. Written by King David after he had an affair with Bathsheba. He had murdered her husband and pride was reigning in his life. But let me read for you Psalm 51, the first 17 verses. Would you follow along? It says this, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for i am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you you alone i have sinned and i have done evil in your sight so you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge indeed i was guilty when i was born i was sinful for my my mother conceived me 
Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and the sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Isn't that it? Isn't that the Christmas story that we see in that a christmas carol isn't that the grinch isn't that a wonderful life that broken spirit that verse that sits right in the middle of all of that is the one that i just kept looking at today restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit he was in this deep dark place and at that time he didn't say god for me to be happy all i need is fill in the blank all I need is a new wife. He had plenty of those already. All I need is a new wife. All I need is a, a, a bigger palace. All I need is a better chariot. That, that wasn't what he said. I need you to restore me unto the joy of your salvation and renew that right spirit within me. God, I need you to make my focus right because it is way off. I'm trying to find joy in the temporary things of happiness. It's kind of like a C.S. Lewis quote that I've used often when he says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea we are far too easily pleased guess what David had lost his focus and he fooled around and he found out he found out exactly what C.S. Lewis was saying here that your joy isn't found in those temporary things he barely even found temporary happiness before major consequences came into his life just like sin always does just like pursuing after the worldly pleasures always does see Far too often in our lives, we settle for happiness rather than joy. We settle for happiness rather than joy. Joy is something that lasts while happiness is temporary and short-lived. Joy is something that comes from within while happiness is based on our external circumstances. Joy is joined by contentment and confidence. While happiness can be gone at any moment, moment causing this weird roller coaster, roller coaster of emotions to really ensue. They just take over our lives. We're far too easily pleased making those mud pies. When we look at that temporary happiness of the world, we try and make it or hope it will replace the true joy that is found in Jesus Christ. I know I've bounced around a lot through your Bible this morning, but if you could do me a favor, this time I'd like for you to read along with me in your Bible on your digital device or up here on the screen, Luke chapter 2. 
Luke chapter 2, and you probably have heard this passage before because it is a large part of the Christmas story. It might be a little too familiar, but today I want you to focus on it and just show you how amazing this part of the story really is. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. So everyone wanted to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks at night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today. In the city of David was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. When the angels had left and they returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let's pray together. Father, today... I just want to ask you help us see the good news of great joy that is for all the people. To know joy and to know you. We pray it in your name. Amen. As we dive into joy this morning, we could have found multiple passages that talk about joy. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, you can read Paul, you can read John, you can read in Luke, you can read in Matthew, you can read in Tim, or the, the letters to Timothy that Paul writes. You can find joy. As a matter of fact, even as Bruce read Philippians this morning, that whole book is about joy. And that joy is found while he is writing from prison. Joy is an amazing thing. But how can Paul write about joy when in prison? Because he saw past the external circumstances and he knew Jesus. How did he know Jesus? Well, the story we just read. Luke chapter 2 and even Matthew chapter 2. And that's where I really want to keep our focus today. In Matthew chapter 2, you're going to see wise men. Probably heard those guys before. Do you know when they saw the story, it says in Luke chapter 10, it says, or sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 2 verse 10, that they were overjoyed when they saw the star why would that be the reaction why would the reaction of good news of great joy for all the people be something that the angel laid out there for all of us why that announcement why that reaction and really i think it comes down to this we have to remember that current culture it had been living in darkness it had been living in in this horrible oppression and God had been quiet for 400 years. Now, I wrote in my notes, do you know how long 400 years is? And the answer is, it's 400 years. But sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it and assume it happens just as fast as we read it. 400 years 
we're only 246 years old as a country. So stop and think about that for just a second. Then another 150 plus years until we hear from God. Can you imagine the darkness and the weight of that darkness that was on all of these people? As a matter of fact, Isaiah puts it in chapter 9, even a couple hundred years before that 400 year gap. He says, the land is under a gloom and distress and an oppressive yoke. But then he says this, just a few verses later in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. It says, for a child will be born to us. A time is coming. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. The Messiah is coming. But the question is, is when? When? When will this darkness break? Well, here's what we find in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. Today. Today. In the city of David, a Savior was born who is the Messiah, the Lord. Hundreds of years of waiting, done. Done. This is the response of joy. Or the reason for the response of joy. The wise men had been waiting. The, the shepherds had been waiting. The people had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And then you have it. That is the real joy that is found in this Christmas season. That is a joy that is found in each and every one of our lives. We can't miss that main event because we're focused on carols or gifts or what the family is going to do or those kind of things. Those are all great things and those are all things that can and probably will make you happy. But that happiness is only seasonal. The real joy lasts forever. If you're a Christian, the joy you have is something that is different. It is something greater. It is something deeper. It's not based on a season. It is constant. It is found in us abiding in Christ. That abiding joy is found in knowing things are good between you and God. Things are right because He gave you His righteousness. Contentment is found in knowing that you have hope beyond any of our current circumstances. That is the joy we have as followers in Christ. And that's why it's called the good news of great joy for all the people. That's what the, the angel pronounced. But, but why do we call it great joy? Other than the fact that the angel said it first. Why do we call it great joy? Why did the angels bust out in song at the end saying glory to God in the highest and you know, praise and goodwill to men? all the things that they started shouting and, and praising at the end? Why is it such great joy? Well, I wrote down four things. I'm sure there's more, but you guys want to leave eventually. So I'm only going to go through four. The first one is this. The news about the Savior brings great joy because it is good news for sinners. It is good news for sinners. I want you to imagine for just a second, shepherds are out in the field watching their flocks by night. At that time, there are no city lights. There are no manufactured lights. It is merely the stars and the fire. Ever gone camping in that deep wilderness and it's just the stars and the fire? And just the darkness that is out there unless the moon is lit up. But there's just a, a reality of, of where you're at in the darkness that you're at, in. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom! Sorry, did I scare you guys? 
It created great fear inside of you, didn't you? That's exactly what I wanted to do. It created great fear because a huge light of an angel talking to you with the, the glory of God shining all around. How impressive and amazing must that have been, but at the same time, terrifying. Terri absolutely terrifying when your eyes are open to the light while living in darkness guess what this is a picture of the land for the last 400 years and the light shines inside and the light lights up the darkness and lives begin to be changed but here's the thing they were afraid and I began to look at why they might be afraid and I go back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 6 verse 5 when Isaiah had a vision of God and in that vision of God and in the conversation with God he realized the perfection of God and he also realized his imperfection because he says these words woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips I'm a sinner that has seen perfection and I fall short of it because I've seen what perfection looks like. How scary of a sight would it be shown how filthy you are when you're put against something that is so clean? That's what we see here. See, the problem today, especially in the church, is we have lessened God and brought Him down to our level. We've made Him in our filthy image rather than us being made in his image and on the flip side of that we've raised ourselves up to think that we're basically good and we can get to heaven on all of our own we don't see God for who he really is and we don't see ourselves for who we really are and you might say well why is that a problem well the result of that is this the good news of a savior really isn't that great a news I don't need a savior I I've used this illustration before but let's say I fell off a boat in the middle of the ocean and I started swimming. And I just think I'm out for a swim. No land in sight, nothing anywhere close by. Somebody comes by with a boat and tries to throw me a life preserver. I'm like, ah, I don't need saving. I can take care of this myself. A life preserver doesn't look that great when I think I can do it on my own. And that's what we see here. We have lessened the good news because we don't think we need to be saved. But let me tell you something. Humanity is in danger. They're in grave danger. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this there is judgment. One day, one day, we're going to stand in judgment before a holy and righteous God. Without the righteousness that comes from our Savior, we are doomed to eternity in hell. I know people don't like to talk about that, but that is the truth. That is the truth. And the great thing is, as I told you last week, if I could write a book, it'd be titled, But God, or The Biggest But to the Bible. I don't know which one will get more attention. But the but God is, is this, God's mercy and God's grace. He gave us Jesus and gave us his righteousness, and that truly is the greatest news of all time. It doesn't matter our circumstances. We are saved by God's grace, and that should bring us great joy. We should find that great joy in the fact that Jesus came for sinners just like us. The second is this. The news about the Savior brings great joy because it's true. It's true. I know that sounds weird to say that, but here's the thing. Good news is only good news if it's true. 
I mean, I could stand up here and say, hey, I've got some good news for you. You have just won $100 million tax-free. And everybody would be like, yes, probably more than a woohoo if it was real. It'd be shock. It would be amazement. It would be joy and happiness. And then you'd say, are you serious? And I would say, just kidding. What would happen to all that joy and shock and amazement and, and happiness? Bum, bum, bum. It, it would all just go away because the news wasn't true. The news about Jesus Christ being the Son of God who was born to save humanity is true. And it's the greatest news that you will ever hear, even better than winning $100 million tax-free. Because again, that is temporary. Jesus Christ is eternal. And guess what? The fact He came to save humanity is the truth. It is the truth. If it's not, let's stop getting together. Let's stop doing this. Let's stop singing Christmas songs that give some sort of false hope. Give us something to, to live for that is really not really going to happen. Let's just go live our lives and have fun because if this is it, then let's make the best of it. But if it is true, it should change everything because it's not just some evil, twisted joke about trying to get your hopes up and then say, just kidding. That's not the way it works. And here's the thing, I could spend lots of time and energy on this point alone about the truth of the gospel. And I go into all the different prophecies that surrounded the birth of Christ that Jesus in himself fulfilled. I, I could say, here's how it all works. Here's the statistical improbabilities of it all. I mean, you're talking statistically improbable. That's the only word I, maybe even statistically impossible for one man to, to fulfill all the prophecies. I could go into all that, but instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you to find your favorite search engine and type in, how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill? And then read the answers. Well over 300. And the probability of that happening, it, it's truly mind-blowing. But here is what I want to tell you today. In the book of Luke, Luke was a very meticulous doctor. And he wanted to make sure he studied well to tell us the exact account of the things that happened. Many scholars actually believe the birth story that is found in Luke, his main source, you know who it was? Mary. Pretty reliable source, not going to lie. I mean, since she was kind of the whole outside of Jesus, the center of it all kind of thing. And he got all of his birth story information from her. And he wanted to make sure that, that he investigated so carefully from the beginning. He actually tells us that in the first three verses of Luke. That his gospel is a fruit of careful research. And in that, he wanted to say, don't, don't miss what's happened. And the other thing about the truth is, is that even when you look at the shepherd's story, when you look at the shepherd's story, it really confirms the, the historical accuracy of the events. The reason why is because why would you make up the story they made up if they were to make it up? Wouldn't you make it just a little bit cooler? Wouldn't you not find a common couple in a stable? Wouldn't you say, hey, you know what? We're going to beef this up just a little bit and we're going to put them in a palace in Jerusalem because that's where a king is supposed to be born. 
We're going to make this bigger and, and grander. And, I mean, when you really look at the Bible and how many flaws the disciples had, that's what tells me more than anything that the Bible is true. Because if I'm writing an autobiography, I'm not focusing on my negative stuff. And, and that's really what we see here coming together. If you're going to make up a story, it's not going to be the way it was. And, and Jesus is going to have probably some sort of mythical and, and magical qualities about him too, by the way, if I'm going to add a little sprinkle into it all. He's going to be able to shoot laser beams out of his fingers. You know, cool things like that. that that's what I'm going to see, but, but there's none of it. Instead, it's a straightforward reporting of events just as they happen. But why does that matter? Well, I believe it matters because our culture today will tell you this. They're going to say, if you want to believe in Christianity... That's okay for you, but not okay for me. Whatever you want to believe is true for you, that's fine. But whatever I want to believe for, is true for me, that is fine as well. There's this basic lack of absolute truth when it comes to the spiritual realm. And it's unfortunately spilled outside of even more than just spiritual realm. But if Jesus was born in history to a Virgin Mary, if he fulfilled the prophecies made hundreds of years before, if the events surrounding his birth were true and accurate, and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension all happened, that's more than just a story that's good for me but not for you. That is a story that is good for everyone. You can't just shrug it off as something that, that is what it is. No, see, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And there is no other and that is the news we need to share. The living God became human. He became incarnate, incarnate, with flesh on his bones. That is what happened here. And that is really good news. But if it's just legend, then it's terrible news. Because all the only thing it's doing is giving us false hope. So the news about the Savior brings great joy because it's good news for sinners. And it's true news. The third thing is this. The news about the Savior bringing great joys because it is news of Christ the Lord. There's some very specific things mentioned in verse 11 that I want you to see. That again, because the story becomes so familiar, we just read it. But hear what is said by the angel. The first thing he says, basically saying Jesus is unique in all of history, is this. There's no one like him. Remember that song David Crowder sang like years ago? There is no one like you. That's what it's singing about here. Listen to what it says. Luke 2.11 lays it out. He is the Christ. You might look at Luke 2.11 and go, wait, it doesn't say that. It says he's the Messiah. Well, it's because he is the Christ. is Greek for the anointed one, but Messiah is the Hebrew for anointed one. It means that God the Father sent an anointed Jesus for the mission of salvation. He was anointed as a prophet to preach the gospel. He was anointed as a priest to offer sacrifice for sins and he was uh, anointed as king to reign. He alone is able to reconcile sinful people to God through his life. That is what this is saying here. His sacrificial death and his resurrection mean everything. He is Christ. Not only is he Christ, he is Christ the Lord. The Lord. Now, you might think, well, lords, we've heard that for years and years and years from the medieval times and, and castle feudal systems, stuff like that. But you have to understand, the Lord that is mentioned in verse 11 is the same Lord that is mentioned in verse 9 and the same word for Lord that is mentioned in verse 23, all referring to God. He is God. That's what Luke is trying to tell us here. A Savior born in Bethlehem is God in human flesh. 
if he'd only been a man, if he'd only been a man, he couldn't have saved us because his death wouldn't have had any meaning beyond his own life. If he'd only been an angel, he could not have been born or could have not have borne human sins onto himself. But because he was Christ the Lord, because he is God, God alone is good enough and great enough to deal with the problems of our sin. And he alone is it. The last thing it says, though, is that he was born. B-O-R-N. He was born. means he's a man. He was born in Bethlehem. He didn't just magically appear. He didn't just float down from the sky. He was born. He was conceived miraculously in Mary's womb, and he went through the stages of development like any human baby would. Can you just stop and think about that for just a second? I'm not sure if you remember that song by Stephen Kirsch Chapman, but it was called This Baby. It's probably one of my favorite Christmas songs. This baby made the angels sing. And this baby made the heavens rejoice. This baby would one day save the world. What an amazing thought that he would come as a fragile infant in a stable to grow and live that perfect life so he could die that substitutionary death. As a representative man, he could bear the sins of the human race. As God, the anointed one. As God, the anointed one in human flesh, Jesus Christ is unique in all the world. He alone qualified to be the Savior of the world. No one has ever lived like him. No one ever will live again like him. That's what makes this good news of great joy. God has put on flesh and dwelt among us. The fourth thing is this. The news about the Savior brings joy because it is for all the people. It is for all the people. I am grateful I'm included in that all. I'm grateful that you are included in that all. But as we want to look at this passage, I want to look at two things in the passage, and that is really focusing on one group, and that is the shepherds. You know that shepherds were not a very popular group of people? Did you know that they were considered social misfits and thieves and religious outcasts? They were considered unclean. They were not allowed to participate in temple worship. They actually spent their entire lives taking care of sheep. Their job was dangerous at times, but mostly boring and tedious and especially dirty and stinky. That's where we find ourselves. But, again, that but, this is the group of people that God decided to first announce the coming of the Messiah. This is it. Th these are the ones. Who would you share? The good news that you have, who would you tell first? If you had great news to share with somebody, who would it be? Probably somebody who's close to you, somebody who you trust, somebody who would be excited with you, somebody who would be willing to celebrate it with you. Why did he choose the shepherds? Not the religious leaders. The ones who probably thought they deserved to hear it first because they've been waiting the longest and they knew all the prophecies and all that stuff. Why not the social elites? They had power, they had status. Why not the scholars who people probably listened to because they were educated men and their, weight, their words had weight to people? But it wasn't. It was the lowest members of society, the shepherds. Why would God trust this great news to them? the greatest news of all time to a bunch of lowly social outcasts. 
I wrote down two things. Again, probably a whole, whole lot more. But here's the two things I wrote down. Shepherds had the ability to be humbled and amazed that God would choose them to hear the news. Imagine how unworthy they must have felt. And at the same time, how honored. I mean, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, what did we learn about people, especially the religious leaders? They were self-righteous. They probably would have thought they were entitled rather than honored to hear the news. The second thing, as I wrote down, is that if they'd seen the baby, the Savior, they would go and spread the word concerning what they knew. You know what they weren't? They weren't afraid of what somebody thought about them. Because guess what? People already thought bad things about them. They were going to share that news. They were not going to talk themselves out of sharing the news because they found themselves in some sort of situation where they're, they're, they're telling themselves, oh, wait, but they're not going to listen. They just did it. They were overflowing with what? Joy. And they had to share it. When you are overflowing with joy in your life, you have to share it. That's what Facebook kind of is about. Or maybe at least it started that way. It's about sharing with things that are going on in your life and when it's something joyful, you just want that person to click that thumbs up or now the heart or now the, 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 the different emojis that go with it. That is what the response we want. We want to share that. They want to share, hey, we were in the darkness and we were brought to light. We were once outcasts. Now we're in the middle of it all and showing how our lives have changed because of it. That is what they wanted about how their world has changed both personally and corporately. And you know what happened when those uneducated simple shepherds spread the word that a Savior had been born? Do you think they were rejected? Do you think people said, you know what, you're just a shepherd. I'm not going to listen to you. Luke records how the response was in verse 18 of chapter 2. You know what it says? They were amazed. They were amazed. God is an infinite wisdom, chose just the right group of people to entrust just the greatest news for all eternity so that even today we still hear it. Those humble men took the good news of Jesus and did what God wanted them to do. They told others and the world and their own lives will never be the same. Isn't that amazing? That it started off with this lowly group. I mean, really, just to wrap up, here is where I find it. No one's beyond the reach of God's grace. From the lowest in society to the highest, it's God's grace that saves a person, person through faith. Not their social or economic status. The gospel truly reaches into the lives of all people with a message of hope, of peace, of love, and of joy. The Advent season. See, the world's going to offer superficial happiness to all people but it doesn't last the only way to know the deep abiding joy that God wants us to have is to know his son personally to have a relationship with him to receive the gift that's been given to us at this Christmas time the savior who is Christ the Lord it is the greatest gift a person could ever receive but there's a little caveat it only brings joy if we receive it if we accept it, and then if we apply it. It's kind of that whole evangelism and discipleship thing. You have to tell somebody, but then you walk with them through this to help them see that joy. 
My question for you this morning is this, is do you know the good news of great joy that's been brought for all the people? Are you living in that good news with joy today? And finally, are you sharing it with joy to others? Because I believe there are people that are waiting. They've been waiting their whole lives, living in darkness, and they need to hear about the light. Are you sharing it today? That today a Savior was born for them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for the way you continue to work in each and every one of our lives. Thank you for the way you speak to us, even in the familiar passages. Even in a passage that some of us have read multiple times over multiple Christmases over the last multiple years. Help us to never forget the good news of great joy that is for all the people. Help us to never forget the good news that you came to pull us out of the darkness so that we could have a relationship with you. Help us to never forget that God, you step down from your throne into a stable to live a common life but a perfect one so that we could have a relationship with you. God, may you have all the glory this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.